The Old Testament reading today is Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, a sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, the psalm today is Psalm 136, verse 1 through 9 and 26. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. His steadfast love endures forever. He alone does great wonders. His steadfast love endures forever. He made the heavens skillfully. His steadfast love endures forever. He spread the land on the waters. His steadfast love endures forever. He made the great lights. His steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule by day. The moon and stars to rule by night. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. A reading from the New Testament, Acts 14, verses 8 
through 18. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Today we're starting a new sermon series through the book of Genesis. So if you brought a Bible with you, open it to Genesis chapter 1. It's the very first book of the Bible right after the introduction in the table of contents. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, there are extra of these blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, one of those is yours to keep. So most of the time in, in this church, it's, it's my conviction that we will preach through whole books of the Bible. And yet, we also like the movement of the church calendar throughout the year. So... 
we focus at different times on different things. And some of you have heard this before, but some of you haven't. Um, basically, we, we take an approach that a lot of Anglican churches do to kind of the John Stott model of seasonal preaching. So as we move into fall, we go into the Old Testament for the anticipation of the arrival of Jesus as we get into Advent. Between Christmas and Easter, we're in the Gospels so we can hear about the life and ministry of Jesus. And then after the resurrection, we move into the epistles so we can see the effects of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on the birth of the church. So, as it's heading into fall, we're going to be in Genesis until Advent. The word we use for this book is Genesis because that's what the Septuagint calls it. The Septuagint was a Greek translation a couple hundred years before Jesus, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which became the Scriptures that everyone in that part of the world would have used. And so it's called Genesis in our language because it's called Genesis in Greek. But the original Hebrew word for it was barashit, or in the beginning, because that's the first three words. Septuagint actually doesn't just call it Genesis, it calls it Genesis Cosmoi, which basically can be sort of translated as the birth of the world or the beginning of everything. And so I think it's fitting that we're going to be in this book because there are so many seeds that are planted in this book that are then sprouted later on in the Bible. So many hints and so much foreshadowing as to what God is doing in his creation. Even though it's the first out of all the 66 books of the Bible, it plays an incredibly pivotal role in the entire story of redemption. Because it's telling a story. And so the question that we ask ourselves as we approach a book like this is, what kind of story is Genesis trying to tell? Well, it's a couple things. It's first and foremost the story about what kind of God it is who made everything, the God that we serve. And so the so Genesis is a theology. It's an explanation of creation detailing some of the specifics about why the world is the way it is, and so you could call it a cosmology. And it's an origin story of who God's people are and where they came from. And so for our purposes, from a human perspective, it's an ontology. One historian said that the direction of a culture can be easily ascertained by the origin story that they tell about themselves. So here's an example. One of the civilizations that the Israelites would have encountered in Canaan had an incredibly warlike origin story. It was dark and grim and disgusting, and I don't know how you could repeat it around children. The earth and everything in it was the result of gruesome, bloody battles amongst various gods. Human beings were somewhere between a cosmic accident and cosmic refuse. They were a wicked and evil product of this warlike creation. And so as a result, human life in that culture didn't have a ton of value. Life was cheap, and wars were common. Or think of the Greeks, one of the earliest and, and most robust empires. They had a huge pantheon of gods who lived on Mount Olympus, the most wonderful paradise you could imagine. And these gods interacted with one another in a variety of ways to try to get what they want sometimes through war, sometimes through alliance and friendship, through subterfuge, trickery, sometimes just luck. Some of them used their brains and some of them used their brawn, and the Greek civilization as a result, because this was the story that they told about themselves, was a varied and rich tapestry of different ways to expand and to get what you want. Often they grew through war, but just as often they grew through intellect and alliances and friendship. 
As I was thinking this week about the creation story that Genesis tells us about ourselves, it seems pretty clear that one of the, one of the reasons, one of the ways that our culture today can oftentimes seem, seem so self-contradictory is because the dominant secular story about how everything came into being is at odds with some dominant secular values. And so it can, it can kind of clang against each other. The dominant secular narrative today is that human life was a happy accident of evolutionary chance. And yet, we're told, all human beings have worth and value. And we should show special care to the less fortunate. And we should try to be mindful of everyone and be fair to everyone and not marginalize anyone. Those two statements are contradictory. The first, that human life is a happy accident of evolutionary chance, is simply at odds with the idea that human life has any inherent worth and value, that people have dignity or agency simply by the fact that they are alive outside of some contribution that they make to the greater good. But that's exactly what the Bible says we are. Because the Bible tells us that a personal and good God created everything, including us, that he set each one of us to be his image bearers, his icons, his representatives and frontline workers. And we see this all the way back in Genesis 1. So, what does Genesis, what does Genesis 1 and 2 say, and what doesn't it say? And this is a good overview. A lot of times, based on the cultural questions that people have attempted to answer from Genesis, it's easy to think that the book of Genesis actually deals with questions that it simply doesn't concern itself very much with. And so it's easy to think that it's going to cover some, co- some topics in great detail that it simply doesn't. Here's a, here's a good common question. Where are the dinosaurs? Here's another one. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? And here's another that comes up a lot. Was it a literal six days? Or was it six different ages? Or is there maybe even a different and third option? Yes, there actually is a different and third option, and we'll get to that in a minute. Genesis is simply not a scientific treatise on how God made everything. And it's not an exhaustive record of everything that happened from the first time that the first... from the first time that the first animal crawled out of the sea up until the time when, when 12 sons of a guy named Jacob went down to Israel. It's not an exhaustive record. Mostly, it's a series of stories about God. The fact that he created every single thing in the entire universe simply by the word of his mouth. It's a series of stories about what his last and best creation was, mankind. And it's a story of how the world was supposed to be and what some of the consequences are as a result of mankind's fall into sin. There are a lot of familiar stories in Genesis, and over the next couple of months, we're going to look at some of them. But oftentimes, we don't think about those stories in context of the greater story and see how they relate to one another and how this book as a whole moves through telling a story in cycles of different generations and nations. So instead of a really deep dive into every nook and cranny of this book, we're going to take more of an overview approach so that we can see how all of these oftentimes familiar stories relate to one another. I mean, it's, it's great to do a deep dive into the book of Genesis. St. Augustine of Hippo, the famed pastor and theologian, did over 50 sermons on Genesis chapter 1. We won't be doing that. 
You may have heard this phrase before, but there is a biblical narrative that goes throughout Scripture of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And each one of those things is found in Genesis. I mean, we can see creation. In a couple weeks, we'll see fall. But when we think of redemption, we often think of the cross in the Gospels. But no, each one of those things is found in part, the seeds of it, in Genesis. It's one of the reasons that it's so important. So, as we consider this book, sometimes it's helpful to think about who the original audience of this book was and what it might have meant to them to make sure that we're not making it to mean something different to us than it was to them. The original audience of this book, in my opinion, would have been the children of Israel wandering in the desert. This book was compiled by, and written by Moses. It was the, the first in a five-book set, commonly called the Torah in Hebrew, which means the law, or the Pentateuch in Greek, which means five books. And this was one long book that Moses wrote to give to his people as they were wandering in this time of leaving Egyptian slavery before they entered into the Promised Land. Now, it's important that I say that modern scholarship has called this into question. Starting in about the 1800s, there were a bunch of critics that theorized that this book was, in fact, not written by Moses during the time of the wilderness wandering because it couldn't have possibly been. What they instead tried to show is that this book was assembled thousands of years later from basically a, a jigsaw puzzle of four different streams of myth and history and law. So you had the, the theists, the guys who just worshipped God without knowing it was God. You had the Yahwehists, the one who had come out of Egypt in slavery and worshipped this God that they thought was Yahweh. You've got a line of priests, and then you've got the book of Deuteronomy, which they didn't know what to do with. And so one of the main underlying beliefs of this theory is that King Josiah, in, in the book of 1 Kings, he discovers the book of the law in the temple. And he says, oh my goodness, this was the book that Moses wrote so long ago, and we haven't been following it, and that's why our country is a mess. And he preached the book of the law to all the people, and all the people repented and turned back to God, and God started to bless their nation, exactly as the book of Deuteronomy said would happen. But what modern scholarship says is that Josiah didn't discover the book of the law. He wrote the book of the law and then buried it, dug it up, and said, what's this I've found? And tried to get his people to live the way that he wanted them to live. It's an interesting theory, it's actually a really good story. It just doesn't have the benefit of being provable outside of theoretical possibility. So far, I mean, so much so that by the 1970s, this theory had actually fallen out of favor. And so there is no reason to not believe that the Bible is what it says it is, any more than to adopt this naturalistic, critical perspective saying that it can't possibly be what it says it is. It is quite possible that this book, Genesis, one of the first five books of the Bible, didn't even reach its final form until after the time of Josiah, when Israel went into exile. It is very consistent to believe that faithful editors were still, were still interacting with this book and that it didn't reach its final form until about 500 B.C. So let me just state this up front. Over the next couple months, this is a good thing to remember. We are operating from the standpoint that Moses wrote this book at the time that the book said that he wrote them to the audience that he wrote them to, the children of Israel, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years between Egyptian slavery and their entrance into the Promised Land. And I'm operating from this standpoint primarily because, and, and I don't mean to be glib about this, but primarily because that's what Jesus believed. That's what he said in the Gospels. And because it's what makes the most sense. 
given the, the, the structure of this book as a covenant of, of a conquering king writing to his subjects. And the fact that it starts out in this first chapter, Genesis 1, as, a, as an apologetic against other gods. Theologian Bruce Walke said, at the heart of Moses' creation theology is a revolutionary creation story where a personal and yet benevolent God creates everything, making a habitable world for his creation and his image bearers. And yet he stands apart from this world and over his creation. He's not one of a pantheon of deities. He's not part of some amorphous naturalistic force that's somehow bound up in his creation. This would have been revolutionary for this time. Nobody would have thought of this. If the original audience of this book was the children of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt and about to enter the Promised Land, think about what they would have been surrounded by, all of these other myths. In Egypt, they would have been surrounded by Egyptian creation myths and a pantheon of gods that was 2,000 deities deep. And they were about to enter Canaan, filled with different little nations, each of which had their own god and their own creation myths. And so part of the point of Genesis, part of this book of beginnings, is to show who God really is and that all other gods are false gods. And so I said before that Genesis is a theology and it's a cosmology and it's an ontology, but it is also, first and foremost, under everything else, it is a doxology. It is something that drives us to worship and praise in awestruck wonder of this God who literally made everything by speaking it into existence. And so as a worship document, it, it shows us exactly how awesome this God is. And it's also a worldview document. In every worldview, there are several questions that are asked. Who are we? What are we doing here? What's the problem and what's the solution? Genesis deals with all of those. But let me, give you, let me give you some examples of how this book sets itself up as, a, as an apologetic or a polemic or a refutation of other religions that the, that the children of Israel would have been discovering. So the local cultures around Canaan that the Israelites either had already encountered or were about to encounter had, for example, a sky god and an earth god. And so what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Most of the cultures in that area on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean had some kind of sea god. What does Genesis 1-2 say? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Over and over again in the Bible, especially in Old Testament prophecy, you'll see the image of the sea as somehow being other and scary and dangerous. It's a place of mystery and death. The Israelites were not exactly seafaring folk, and their narratives reflected that. And so the writers of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but writing things in their own words, used that imagery of the sea as a place of death and confusion to help illustrate exactly what kind of God it is that we gather every week to worship. Because what Genesis is saying is there's no sky God because God made the sky. There's no 
earth God or land God because God made the land. And that sea God that you are so constantly worried about, the one who stirs up the water and puts mankind in peril, he doesn't exist. Because God made the seas and, in fact, is so in control of his creation, is in, even in control of this place of mystery and danger and death. And so we see the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, literally hovering over the face of the water. And a better accurate translation might be covering it, enveloping it. It's the same image that's often used of a, a mama bird putting her wings over a baby bird. The sea has no inherent power because God covers the sea. The thing that we are often most afraid of, we have absolutely no need to fear it because God is in control of his creation. And so we begin to get this poetic pattern. It's beautiful poetry. God spoke and it was so. God spoke and it was so. And there was morning and evening the first day. And there was morning and evening the second day. It's a rhythm that God is setting up for how his creation works. But if you think about it, the order of how things were made is a little odd. If you read it, you'll see that somehow there were plants before there was a sun and a moon and stars, even though the light had already been created. And that's just one example of how can that work? If God has literally made everything and there's order and purpose to his creation. How can that work? Even back then, the wandering nomads in the desert would have known that plants need light for food. And so I had said earlier that there might be a third way of how do we look at this creation narrative. Maybe it isn't six literal days, although maybe it was. Maybe it isn't six individual ages or eons, although maybe it was. But I think a more helpful way to think about this as we start to move through Genesis is basically a, a framework theory of forming and filling. If you take the, the six days of the week, days one through three, different aspects of creation are formed. On day one, the heavens and the earth. On day two, the seas. On day three, the land. And then days four, five, and six, those, th those bits of creation that have been formed are now filled. And so the heavens and the earth were formed and then on day four, they are filled with lights, the stars, the sun, and the moon. And then on day two, the sea is formed. On day five, the sea is filled, teeming with creatures. And then we have the land being formed, the land being filled with birds and insects and every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth. And then finally, after this pattern is set up, this forming and filling, forming and filling, we get the one thing that breaks it. And that's always the thing that will jar us out of, out of this rhythm because something important is about to be said. Because after all this forming and filling, then God created man. Then God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is another point where the narrative of the Bible pushes against all the other dominant cultural narratives of that time. The idea, and this is foreign to us today, but the idea that men and women are made somehow as image bearers of God 
would have been insane to the people of that time. Men were seen as possible image bearers of God, and in some cultures, the leader would even arise to the status of deity. But women were sort of accidents. They were sort of men that, that something went wrong and they became women. But no, the Bible tells us that all of God's people, men and women, are created in the image of God. And so the takeaway from this, after we see that God created us, that God blessed us, that God gave us a charge and a command, often called the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. Basically, this is my world, I made it, and now you are going to take care of it on my behalf. And so we see that there are several things that we can draw from this. After the beautiful poetry of seeing how God created things and then the charge that God gave, gives to us, we can see, first and foremost, that this world and everything in it is important. It was created by a personal and benevolent God for His glory and for His purposes. It has purpose and it is not an accident. And the second is that you are not an accident. You were created and formed to fill this world. You were created and formed by a personal and benevolent God for His glory and for His purposes. And the third is, no one else that you've ever met is an accident. Each and every one of us was created by a personal and good God for His purposes and for His glory. And so in that, we can find dignity and purpose when God says, basically, go and make the rest of the world look like this. Go and make the rest of the world look like this garden paradise that I have put you in. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, he said, it was very good. So, the last thing that we can take away is not just about the goodness of creation, not just about the inherent worth and dignity of each and every one of us, and not just about the purpose that God has given us as, him, as his image bearers. But the last thing that we can take away from this is just hinted at now. It will be shown in, in even more clarity next week as we get into chapter 2, and then it will really start to come into fuller and fuller picture as we move through Genesis. And the point is this. The beginning of everything, the center of everything that God has made, can be reduced to one phrase, and that is the kingdom of God. And we know that because thousands of years later, when the Apostle John wrote his gospel, he took the language and the tone and the feel from the beginning of Genesis. And he illustrated what we know to be true, that Jesus was there at creation, that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was there at creation. And so, if God was there, then the kingdom of God was there. Because the kingdom of God is wherever God is. Jesus himself said this. And if God was there and the kingdom of God was there, then when God planted us in the midst of this garden and gave us a task, then at that point, God's first people, Adam and Eve, were right in the bosom of the kingdom of God. And that's where we are longing to return to. So the beginning of everything, the end of everything, and the point of everything is the kingdom of God. 
with Jesus at its center. The very Word of God through whom all things were made. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for giving us this picture of how you made everything. We ask that as we walk through this book together that you would open it up to us, that you would clear away any preconceptions that we have about it, that you would use it to show us your truth about your kingdom and your Son, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.